Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 75. Recovering events in 1984 and various issues had arisen. The South Africans and the Angolans had been jointly patrolling southern Angola in what was supposed to be a preamble to peace for Namibia. But the joint monitoring process had failed by July 1984, with Swapo continuing to occupy the southern region of Angola and the South Africans continuing to supply UNITA. This JMC process was always doomed, some say, but at the start there were signs that FAPLA and the SADF could work together. Unfortunately, for the many hundreds and thousands who were still to die, that good faith faded away rapidly and there was no chance of a proper ceasefire. While the JMC continued operating in name, on the ground things were going from bad to worse. Eventually, the whole exercise would be terminated by mid-1985. But before we get there, it's important to focus on some special operations of 1984. You've heard how the SADF Special Forces, specifically the Rekis, had been tasked with disrupting Angolan maritime resources. And last episode, we covered what happened during Operation Bougainvillea earlier in 1984. The next stop was called Nobilis, where seaborne operators were going to try and blow up the ASO-2 missile boats the Angolan Navy had secured from the Russians. Earlier in the war, the SA Navy was somewhat scathing of Angolan capacity, but everything changed when the OSA-2 missile boats arrived in 1982. They added a new and more deadly dimension to Luanda's capability. By late 1983, there were six of these vessels deployed to ports like Soyo, Lobito, Monchamides and Luanda. The OSA-2s were a threat and the first of their type to sink a warship with guided missiles, destroying the Israeli Navy's ship Eilat, which was sunk on the 21st of October 1967 in the Mediterranean International Waters off Port Said in the Sinai. Three Styx missiles launched by Egyptian Osa boats had hit the Eilat. Out of a crew of 199, 47 Israelis were killed or missing and around 100 wounded, so the Osas were not to be trifled with. The Osa missile boats had the ability to pick up radar and radio transmissions, and it was their detection capabilities that turned them into targets for the South Africans. However, by the 1980s, these Osas were not top-of-the-range killing machines. The Soviets were farming them out to their allies in the Third World. They were wooden-hulled, and their defensive armament was rudimentary at most. Two manually operated 25mm guns without radar, and in heavy seas, the missile box was vulnerable to damage by waves. Luanda could also call in a mixture of ex-Portuguese patrol boats and four Schirschen torpedo boats. These Schirschen were torpedo cutter fast attack craft, cheap to build, and the first slid off the production line in 1960. The torpedoes, though, were straight run only, no homing capabilities, so the SA Navy was not too worried about them, and yet they were aware the Schirschen's other threat was to submarines on the surface. Still, the old Russian warships didn't even have sonar or electric warfare systems, and were rudimentary too. Eventually, Four Recky was given the project to sink three OSA missile boats inside Luanda Harbour during the Dark Moon period. It was important to allow UNITA to claim the attack, so the mines were going to be attached to these ships at only around one metre below the surface. The South Africans used sophisticated underwater breathing systems, allowing them to approach much deeper, so they hoped the shallow attachment of the mines would convince the Russians and the Angolans that it was the rebel movement and not the SA special forces. As you're going to hear, Moscow was not going to be fooled by this. The MPLA as well were going to figure out who was to blame for mining ships in their harbour. Commandant Hannes Fenter was appointed ops commander and the submarine that was going to conduct an extremely complex series of manoeuvres offshore 
was the SAS Johanna van der Merwe. Its commander was Steve Stead. As usual, Strikecraft would provide support, and the SAS Oswald Pirro, commanded by Jock Deacon, and the SAS Jim Fouchier, and the commander Fred Kutje, were put to sea. The logistic support ship SAS Protea was also sailing in the north of Southwest African waters, just in case. The submarine would insert the special forces, then recover them later, and was the official tactical HQ for the ambitious attack. The sub would conduct periscope reconnaissance during the afternoon of the 27th and 28th of July. The recce's would be inserted on the night of the 28th, if it is all deemed ready to go. It was also agreed that if the Osas were out of the harbour or couldn't be hit, alternative targets would be identified. The two strike craft carrying the recce teams were to rendezvous with the submarine 100 nautical miles west of Luanda at 1900 hours on the 26th of July, and the men would board. The two strike craft would then head out to sea and await further instructions, south of the Kaneni River, close to where the SAS Protea was steaming about, supposedly conducting a survey off Luderitz. The Angolan Navy base was halfway along the Ila de Cabo, a peninsula which protected the harbour and a beach reconnaissance would be required to identify the best place to cross into the bay. The first point was just north of a brightly lit panorama hotel and the other near the club in Navali. Three of the Zodiac inflatable boats were going to be involved, each with two crew. Two of the Zodiacs would take three divers and one had the mission commander and four recce doctor aboard. It was important to get to about one nautical mile offshore on board the submarine, then be let loose on the inflatables. This was pretty close, considering they were so close to Luanda. Five divers would each carry a mine containing five kilograms of Torpex explosive, the fuses set with a delay of four and a half hours. The sixth mine was a dummy, which was set up to appear to have been built by UNITA. So they set sail on the evening of the 15th of July for this ambitious undertaking, with the equipment loaded aboard the Johanna at night in Simonstown Harbour. The sub set off from the harbour the next morning at 1100 hours, and after clearing the bay, dived to 200 metres. This was to test how watertight the search periscope was. Then it submerged once more and turned to sail up the Atlantic coast, surfacing west of Robben Island. She submerged once again and then began her journey up the coast to Angola, sailing on the surface at night and during overcast days. On the 22nd of July, Oswald Pirro and Jim Fushia Strikecraft were each loaded with the Zodiacs and the engines, as well as fuel, at Donkerhut Base. The next day, the operators and medical teams boarded the Strikecraft at 0900 hours. It took these craft three and a half days to reach the rendezvous point 100 nautical miles west of Luanda. There was a delay when one of the strike craft commanders took off unaware he was supposed to wait for six submariners to make space for the operators. There was total radio silence, so Commander Kutje of the Jim Fushia had to be contacted on a special HF Hopper scheduled call. Eventually, the six submariners were picked up. Complex operations can often be affected by some pretty basic mistakes. With the operators safe on board, the Johanna headed towards the coast on the surface in a light mist until just after 6.30 in the morning, when it was forced to dive. Two vessels were approaching. They were thought to be fishing boats. And by late afternoon, they managed to conduct periscope familiarization. They needed to be sure of where this hotel was, and also the fishing boats, which began switching on their lights as the sun began to set. Later that night, Johanna, still submerged, sailed to the point position just offshore, surfacing at 2200 hours 20. The sea, fortunately, was calm. There was no wind and it was dark. There was also no moon. 
two of the Zodiacs were assembled at speed, and in 25 minutes they were heading towards the beach with Captain Hubert in command. The sub dived and remained three nautical miles from the rendezvous position. The Zodiacs, meanwhile, headed towards the Panorama Hotel and laid up somewhere offshore so that the engines couldn't be heard above the sound of the sea. Corporals Rodriguez and Coimbra slipped overboard and swam the few hundred metres to the beach, coming ashore undetected near the rocks of a breakwater. As they peered over the rocks, they were trying to assess where the divers would be able to cross the road on foot to the other side to enter the water of the harbour itself. The big problem was foot traffic on this breakwater, and vehicles were also travelling along the road. Each time they tried to lift their heads above the rocks, a car would appear or a fisherman would walk towards them. They'd have to sink back into the ocean. There was no way of doing a foot recce. After hours of attempts, and at 0200, they swam back out to the Zodiacs and headed back to the Johanna rendezvous point. What they didn't know was in the meantime, the submarine was zigzagging between increasing fishing boat traffic, particularly from the southwest. These boats were heading back to their harbour after a night of fishing, and the South Africans had miscalculated just how busy this harbour got at night. The Zodiac crew had an interesting way to signal the submarine. They'd drop an underwater grenade, and the sub would pick up the sonar blast, and then track towards the explosion. Eventually, at 0310, the recon team was located. Zodiacs recovered, the Johanna headed out to sea once more. Time to decide what to do. The teams discussed the predicament. If they emerged from the ocean at the breakwater carrying their mines and breathing equipment, it would be a dead giveaway. The new plan was to head around the breakwater and into the harbour using the Zodiacs. This was going to be tricky. There were patrol boats operating throughout the night using searchlights. They were armed with cannons and machine guns. The harbour was also protected by heavy weapons and, of course, the warships were armed. They needed to take one more look at the breakwater and harbour before any final decision. The Johanna headed back to the drop-off point again the next night, and at 20 hundred hours 15 surfaced off the Panorama Hotel. But during the offloading of the three boats, one, codenamed K-40, had been damaged, and this operation could not be carried out with only two Zodiacs. While they were busy, they also spotted a large, low-flying aircraft. It was flying straight towards them with its landing lights on. The sea was lit up, but it suddenly turned towards Luanda Airport. The Rekis knew then that they were close to the final approach area of the airport and were in real danger of being spotted. They headed back out to sea again. At 0630 the sub returned, this time from the southwest, trying to spot other possible areas to use to cross the breakwater, or at least to enter the harbour. After some hours cruising back and forth, searching by periscope, one of their prey an OSA missile boat was actually spotted closing in on them at 16 knots from the northeast. The sub hastily submerged and headed back to open water. Tonight would be the final attempt, all agreed. That night, the Johanna surfaced at the same drop-off position off Panorama Hotel at 20 hundred hours 15. The Zodiac engine had been repaired, so the three inflatables were lowered into the water and the teams headed off on their dangerous mission. The sub slipped back to periscope depth, and began cruising back and forth along the coast, ready for any emergency. The three Zodiacs rounded the breakwater point very slowly, trying to reduce the size of their wake. They headed towards a wreck to the north of the base, and the divers prepped their gear. Then Corporals Rodriguez and Coimbra swam to the wreck, which was going to be used as a tactical HQ during this mission, if it was deemed stable enough. 
The rusty deck was checked. It was intact, so the boats were secured alongside on the boarding ladder of that wreck. It was apparent immediately that the intelligence they had been given had failed to assess the strength of the tidal current, which was setting in a northwards direction. This meant the divers would be swimming against a powerful current as they tried to escape the harbour after laying their mines. The teams on the wreck agreed they'd never managed to outswim this current in time. Furthermore, they watched the Russian Cresta II-class cruiser called the Admiral Yumoshev and a refueling tanker tied alongside at the naval quay, as well as a Foxtrot-class submarine. The crews all appeared wide awake. There was also a Russian repair ship and a patrol boat with a searchlight sailing up and down the naval area. Security was even tighter than expected. There was no way that they'd be able to mine the Osa missile boats and get away. But all was not lost. The Rekis looked around the harbour and spotted two merchant vessels in the inner anchorage, both with military vehicles on the upper deck. These seemed to be a juicy target, and Captain Joubert deemed them worthy of sabotage. One of the Rekis thought the Foxtrot class sub lurking nearby was also worthy of sabotage, but Joubert restored sanity, according to Doe Stain in his book Iron Fist from the Sea, and set about planning the mine laying. The six divers then set off towards the two merchant ships. Warrant officer Boats Bootes somehow, though, managed to drop his mine as he swam the few hundred metres. One of the flotation pieces had broken off, all the taping had come loose. But the others managed to attach theirs to the ships, along with the dummy mine, before withdrawing back to the rusty wreck in the pitch dark. It was a long and tortuous swim, some of it underwater. While they were busy, a patrol boat had appeared at the wreck, luckily from the other side, and shone its light on the superstructure and the upper deck, before turning away. That was a close call. Fortunately, the crew of the three Zodiacs had pulled back from the wreck before the patrol boat pitched up, or they'd probably have been spotted. But by now, the Zodiacs were back at the rusty wreck, and the exhausted divers were swimming into view. Chief Petty Officer Britz had climbed onto the wreck to keep a lookout and spotted them. The mission commander radioed for an early rendezvous west of the Ile de Cabo lighthouse. Everyone clambered back into the Zodiacs, and then made their way slowly out of the harbour, past the breakwater, and towards the lighthouse. Eventually, the Johanna found them 1.5 nautical miles north of the rendezvous position. The current was so strong it had pushed them off course. Things were now moving fast, because a ship was seen sailing towards them from the north, and the submarine had to take evasive action, while the zodiacs were still attached. The vessel suddenly veered towards Johanna, and the commander went to full speed, still on the surface. For 15 minutes, it was cat and mouse. The patrol boat eventually gave up, turned and headed back to Luanda. A few minutes later, at 0400 hours 50, four bright white flashes could be seen back at the harbour, which was now more than 10 nautical miles away. The radio crackled into life with shouts of, Mayday! 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 The Russian warships, and the Angolan Navy vessels headed out to sea searching for the saboteurs. By 0517, bright lights could be seen heading towards the sub, while the radar signal detected a ship of some kind heading towards them. It was going to be a close call. Time to go. The Johannes commander ordered a deep, fast dive, and everyone went silent. Almost four hours later, at 0915, the submarine rose to periscope depth. The commander looked around. The warships had disappeared. They were still only around 36 nautical miles offshore, so the Johanna remained submerged for the rest of that day, only resurfacing at 20 hours 30 at night to clear the air. 
Eventually, it rendezvoused with the strike craft, transferred their recce passengers and headed off. Later, it emerged that four recce had targeted the 9,000-ton Angolan vessel Lundoji and the 7,500-ton East German cargo ship called the Arantia. The East German vessel was carrying 28 heavy vehicles and artillery. Two explosions had shaken the ship, which went down by the bow. The engine room flooded shortly afterwards and the crew abandoned ship. None had been injured or killed. Its stern was still above water and a Russian tug called the Neotrasimu towed it to a nearby sandbank so that if it sank, it wouldn't be inside the anchorage. Lundoge had just arrived from Brazil carrying food and military hardware. The explosions had caused massive flooding, but the captain had managed to reach the commercial quay before she settled on the bottom. The cargo was almost all destroyed by seawater, but the Angolans managed to patch her up, and she was refloated, then towed all the way to Rio de Janeiro for repairs, and was back in service later in 1984. The Ardencia was another matter. Russian divers discovered the unexploded dummy mine. Finally, on the 1st of August, divers removed the mine by pulling it off with a motorboat, then towed it to a nearby beach. Soviet and Cuban specialists examined the dummy, finally deciding to detonate the device. The Ardencia, though, was too badly damaged to be restored to seaworthy condition, and a month later, she was patched up temporarily, refloated, and in September towed out to sea and scuttled in 500-plus metres of water. So ended another sabotage mission, which had not gone exactly as planned, but proved that Fort Reiki was still a thorn in the Angolan side. The Angolans quickly realised the mines had to be the work of divers. Their defensive tactic introduced immediately after this involved squads of Cuban engineers. These men were provided with boxes of grenades and would join all ships docking in Luanda. They'd lob four grenades an hour over the side at irregular times, and all the ship's crews were also forced to remain on board so that the vessels could shift position at any time of day or night. The Cubans were also trained to fire at anything in the dark that moved inside the harbour. They were extremely jumpy after the sabotage of the two ships. Meanwhile, UNITA had told reporters in the Portuguese capital Lisbon that their operatives had carried out the attack. The Angolan media, though, reported that the ships had been hit by American mines, with one editorial mentioning that the technique used was the same as the CIA in Nicaragua. The US, of course, denied this. The Angolans investigated further and then found out that fishermen had spotted a rubber boat with three men aboard, while a Soviet fishing crew confirmed their story. The Russians said they'd been at anchor when a small boat approached and then turned away. The South African dummy mine trick had backfired. It was so obviously different from the real mines, it was fitted with a Bigford safety fuse patented in 1831, and this fuse was seven meters long. Luandan authorities finally and correctly attributed the mines to what they called the South African Underwater Special Forces. An SADF debriefing later led to all agreeing that they'd underestimated the professional ability of both the Russian and Cuban specialists when it came to analyzing their dummy mines. Better intelligence too would have helped in planning Operation Nobilis, particularly when it came to the location of the OSA missile boats and of course the speed and direction of the current. Meanwhile, back on the ground in southern Angola, 3-2 Battalion was involved in quite an interesting change in tactics by 1984, which I'll get to next episode. They began to deploy something called pseudo-operations made famous by the Salute Scouts. More about that in episode 76. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps increase the series' visibility. If you want to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Deslathan. 
Until next, goodbye. Mm-hmm.